cliffcentral.com. All right. It is Thursday morning and it is time for the Burning Platform. We always welcome an interesting guest from somewhere in the world. And we also have this morning with us Kanthan Pele as well, who is our regular uh, comrade on the Burning Platform, where we take on all the stories of the week. Pumi Mashiko is here too. And we welcome uh Godfrey, it's very nice to have you here, Godfrey. What a pleasure to have you. Godfrey Madanhire, who is, um, I'll put up your, your Twitter handle in a moment, a professional speaker. He's a leadership expert and author, entrepreneur, producer, and host of a podcast called The African Passport, which seeks to promote Pan-Africanism and the integration of the African continent. Uh, you've got an uphill battle ahead of you there, especially with South Africa, I'm afraid. What can I say, Godfrey? <laughs> He was born in Zimbabwe. He's permanently moved to, to SA 23 years ago. He strongly believes that we've been portrayed as a dark continent, a home to war and poverty. And he says it is our responsibility as African citizens to help change the narrative and position us as an equal global partner, which is an admirable charge indeed. So did I get that, uh, that brief CV right? Are you happy with that? Thank you very much, uh, Gareth, and uh, thank you very much for having me on the Benning platform. Let's get it Benning. Absolutely. There's a lot to cover here. Uh, Canton, nice to see you. How are you? I'm always awesome. Let me turn and, on your uh, microphone. That would help. Do you know that apropos of swimming, that in order to graduate from Princeton when I went there, you needed to pass a swimming test? You did? Yes. And the reason for that was that there was once a undergraduate who drowned you know, shortly after joining there. And so learning how to swim became compulsory. And I, th I think it's something that needs to happen. Um, how, how do you know when someone's been to Princeton? They tell you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd like you to bring up uh, your, your fantastic um, Ivy League education. All right, so let's talk about some of the things that are going on this week. Uh, Godfrey, Canton, Pumi, there's a lot to talk about, but let's start off with the obvious reason why you may be an expert in this field, or certainly why we want your commentary, is the Zimbabwean elections and the fact that three presidents, um, we know Mozambique, South Africa, and one other, I'm not sure who, pitched up at Inok Godongwana's, uh, sorry, not Inok, yeah, sorry, Emerson, Emerson, because I saw Enoch here in my, in my notes. We're going to talk about him in a minute when it comes to tax. But uh, Emerson Nongagwa's uh, house and congratulated him and Fikile Mbalula was there making friends and influencing people and taking pictures for his Instagram. How do you feel these elections went and what do you think the real story out of Zimbabwe is? We've got very, very uh, disparate opinions about this in South Africa. But what is your take on this, Godfrey? All right. I think, uh, yes, uh, like you mentioned, you know, it was, uh, you know, very few uh, presidents who made their way to Zimbabwe for the inauguration of um, President uh, Emerson Dambuzom Nangagwa, you know, popularly known as uh, E.D. Obviously, we had the former president. He's also Zambia. popularly known as the uh, crocodile. I just wish he's, to point out. Sorry, that's right. He's also known oh. as the crocodile, right? Oh yes, no, that's correct. You know, that's correct. You know, that's uh, <laughs> the name he carried during the liberation struggle. And uh, yeah, we had uh, you know former president of Zambia, Edgar Lungu. You know, and the obviously you know longtime friends with uh, ZANU-PF, which is uh, the ruling party. So it was not surprising to see him there. We had, uh, you know, the president of, um, uh, you know, from Mozambique, Felipe Nyuse, uh, maybe because also they are expecting elections, you know, coming through with, um, you know, President Cyril Ramaphosa. For me, it was actually a surprise, you know, to see President um, Cyril Ramaphosa um, 
making his way to you know the inauguration they wanted as many presidents you know to come through to try and uh, you know sanitize you know the you know the elections um you know you had the president you know Kedi uh, from uh, DRC you know I think he was also there and uh, you know a surprise guest for me you know was uh, the former uh, you know first lady you know which is uh, my Grace Mugabe because we know um when uh, president Robert Mugabe was still alive and uh, President um, Emerson Mnangagwa was still the vice president. You know, they used to fight, you know, a lot openly. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, yeah, for, for uh, us to see her embracing him now, and we also know that uh, even um, just before President uh, Robert Mugabe passed on, he went out in the public and he denounced the presidents of... Um, uh, Emerson uh, Nangagwa, and he openly said he was going to vote for the opposition. Yeah. So um, I don't know if we would say she's singing for a supper, but uh, you know it was very. Um, so maybe she's just me. singing for that Manalo Blanket bag she was holding. Yeah, she's just uh, she's after Manolo Blahnik bag. So uh, tell me, Godfrey, you know there there are people who say, fine, this is all good and well. Was the election free and fair? I mean, people ask this about the U.S. election now, so it's not an unfair question. What do you say to that? You know, it's uh, you know, when you assess an election, I think you need to start from even the you know the pre-election period. You look at uh, the election period and the post-election period. Uh, you know, just briefly, if we look at uh, the pre-election period, if we compare what happened in 2018 and what happened in 2023 now, um, the pre-election period was uh, a bit better for the uh, for the opposition because they were allowed to campaign they even went into uh, some of uh, you know the strongholds for the ruling party you know zanpf we also know that you know some of their um, rallies were you know were cancelled you know the zimbabwe republic police could not uh, you know allow them to hold those uh, rallies which is something that is not uh, surprising you know mm. they very limited uh, coverage by the public broadcaster which is you know, zimbabwe a broadcasting you know, corporation and again that is not uh that is not surprising it's very common in Zimbabwe. unlike in south africa where you have uh many you know channels and uh, if the opposition is not happy with the public broadcast they can always uh you know engage yeah they've the got no they've got no chance of doing that in zim right no, it's, it's no, not at all. Not at all. You know, there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing like that. You know, there is, uh, uh, you know, a monopoly of uh, of the airwaves, if you can, uh, we can, we can and, put it that way. And, and, uh, and Godfrey, can can you give us can you give us a feeling about how Zimbabweans in South Africa feel about this election? Because there are a huge number of people who are from Zimbabwe, like you, who live in South Africa now. Uh, many of those people have moved here permanently. You got here 23 years ago. Um, but some people are still coming across today. And, you know, we had JJ Tabane say last week, Zimbabwe must sort itself out. This is not our problem. And why should we care about this? Uh, South Africa is being burdened by Zimbabwe's banana republic government. Um, we have to accommodate Zimbabweans in this country. That's not how many of us feel. Um, but that's certainly what he said last week. How do you think Zimbabweans in South Africa are feeling about this election? Yeah, now you know. I think I can say uh, is Zimbabweans uh, in the in the diaspora because uh, you know I think the feeling is uh, the same. You know, everyone wants a change. 
Um, I know, you know, people think it is easy for people to leave their home, to leave Zimbabwe and um, be in an unfamiliar environment, away from home. Um, and of course, we, you know, we get used to it, you know, but, um, you know, oh, home will always be home. You know, everyone wants to go back home and uh, that can only be possible if things change, if things change for the better. So um, it's, 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 it's an open secret, you know, that uh, most Zimbabweans that are outside the country, you know, we're hoping for, 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 for change. And um, it's, it's unfortunate, you know, it didn't happen, you know. Um, Godfrey, I, I just, myself, Godfrey, yes. you know, I yes, hear you say that a lot of people outside, a lot of Zimbabweans who are out in the diaspora, who are all over the world, are hoping for change. Now, just hoping for change isn't going to affect a change. What is it? that Zimbabweans are actively doing every day to come to a place of change. So it's, it's, it's also not going to be a single act of showing up on election day to get change. But we don't see that. I think it's the reason why JJ says what he says. This, everybody is kind of feeling a little bit of an exasperation with Zimbabweans that says Zimbabweans actually like what's going on in Zimbabwe because they're not doing enough to change it. Okay, you know, there's there's a lot that, uh, you know, Zimbabweans in the diaspora are doing, uh, you know, which might not be out there in the public. I can tell you now, you know, for for, for instance, you know, even this um, new opposition party, uh, CCC, you know, this is a party that was formed out of uh, the movement for democratic change, you know, when obviously they you know, they left the party, they were forced out of the party and they had to come up with another party. They didn't have any funding. And who funded that, uh, you know, that organization? Or who is funding that organization? It's people that are, that are in the diaspora. People in the diaspora, they also, they might not have gone back home to vote um, and uh, they were not obviously given the chance to vote while they're outside the country. And that is something that probably should be looked at uh, in, in, in future. But they also they had an influence uh, in uh, making sure, you know, that, uh, you know, beat their families, their parents back home, you know, they vote and they vote uh, wisely. Um, you know, but the conditions uh, on the ground were not as easy. I'll tell you openly about, you know, my mother. Um, you know, we have a family WhatsApp group, you know, where we, where we talk. And we talk about anything and everything. But once I start talking about politics, you know, she doesn't comment. You know, she, I, I don't even know how she voted. In as much as I wanted to, you know, to, 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 to educate her, to okay, understand, once I start that subject, you know, I know she will just uh, disappear, she will just blue tick me. So, you know, it, do you it, feel it's, it's because enough? she feels... Do you feel it's enough? Sorry. I, I, I think, I think, I think we're trying, under the circumstances, I think we're trying, we're trying our best. But, you know, we can't just blame Zimbabweans, or we can't just uh, say maybe Zimbabweans are not doing enough. Now we have um, a situation where uh, some people are even saying, maybe South Africa is actually happy with what is happening in Zimbabwe. If, uh, <laughs> Zimbabweans are happy. But Zimbabweans are happy. So I, I hear what you're saying, that they have funded it, but they, they didn't go back to vote. They didn't, you know, all of those things. You you want other people to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. So you are just as happy with what's happening in Zimbabwe. 
if you are willing for no, other so people to get hurt and you will not get hurt. I think as South Africans, one of the things that we look at and we think about our experience, if we think about the number of South Africans who abroad and you say South Africa, Zimbabweans in the diaspora are doing stuff, but it's not in the mainstream. You think about South Africans when they were abroad and all over the world, they were everywhere. They were agitating. They were, that is why all over the world, people know about what was happening in this country and they were able to rally behind what was happening in this country. Zimbabweans are okay to, maybe they are far from home, but they are comfortable in their restaurant jobs in South Africa. Bumi, if I say now um, uh, South Africa or the ruling party ANC is happy with what is happening in Zimbabwe, would you agree with me? I think so. Yes, they are. But they, they, they have and, South Africa. And, and Zimbabweans have Zimbabwe. And Zimbabweans but, but, are also happy with what's happening there. But you know what? There. Pumi uh, and Godfrey and Canton and frankly everybody else, we all know that we've got a diaspora of our own all over the world. Mm. We, we're sitting here criticizing Zimbabwe, which is fair in some ways. I, I, don't, I don't mind that. We don't need to be super sensitive about it. And I think Godfrey's trying to field these questions without actually having a mandate from all Zimbabweans. He doesn't represent a whole lot of Zimbabweans. He's just speaking as one person. But, but does so their president. <laughs> no, but, but South Africans are also spread all over the world because there are so few economic opportunities for them here. The difference is that we Tana are allowed to vote from anywhere in the world, Gareth. So... Yeah, yeah. But, okay. Which, which is a big difference. Fair enough. Mm. I wonder how many people take advantage of that. Actually, qu actually a quite a few. Yeah, really? Yeah, quite a few. Yeah, there were several hundred thousand votes that uh, in the 2019 um, elections. Certainly, they were they were at the yes. time. Well, Look, can I can I toss well, in a, a couple of um, of uh, of viewpoints out here and let let's get comments from our guests on this. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you know goes back to the time that we had a, a situation where it was very clear that Morgan Changara had won the election. Yeah. And that was when Bob was still alive. When Bob mm. was still alive. And the stuff up on Changarai's part at the time was really what he should have done was stepped up to the plate and say, uh, thank you to the people of Zimbabwe for this mandate that I've been given. And I would like to extend the hand of friendship to the armed forces of Zimbabwe and to assure them that they... Uh, service to this country will continue unchecked uh, uh, during our time. Instead, he went to the rest of the world and said, I won the elections and they won't let me be president. Where? Where, exactly. So, you know, instead of at that time <laughs> taking the bull by, by the horns, um, there, there was a stuff up. So, so Mbeki then brokered the deal that saw Mugabe as president and Changarai as prime minister. And Mugabe then said to him. Their own little coalition. Yeah, but he said, uh, uh, Mugabe then said to Changarai, listen, guy, now that uh, you've got uh, uh, um, the authority that you need, go to your Western backers and tell them to now start giving us money and start lifting sanctions. And Changarai did that and everyone extended the middle finger to him. And so Bob said, aha, you see. And Bob then went to the Chinese, who then gave Bob a billion dollars. And um, and the rest kind of became history from that point onwards. So, you know, the, the first thing is that the opportunity has been there in the past. But actual strength of leadership on the part of the, uh, the, the opposition. opposition has actually been lacking. And to a large extent, it still does so to this day because, you know, the extent of – 
the uh, the impact of geopolitics upon Zimbabwe is not actually interrogated by the opposition. Everything is all about the corruption of uh, of Zanu PF, and make no mistake, Zanu PF is corrupt in exactly the same yeah, way as the I, NC is corrupt. I just feel like it's become like a running gag now when people talk about failed states and they talk about basket cases, they talk about Zimbabwe now all over the world. It came up, I was listening to a podcast the other day and yeah, Venezuela and Zimbabwe are the names that come up all the time, not Afghanistan, you know? It's it's Zimbabwe and Venezuela. And although, I think although there are lots of things in Zimbabwe that actually work a lot better than they do out here. Well, you go there often. And I go, and yeah. I go there often, sure. as, uh, as you're fully aware. So the electricity situation is significantly better in Zimbabwe than it is uh, out here as That's as a very good example. Right. I'm very happy to walk the streets of Harare without fear of getting mugged. Yeah. Is another good, uh, good good example. So and there are many parts of uh, of uh, Zimbabwe where there are um uh, people who are living in absolute comfort and you know enjoying a fabulous lifestyle and uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm talking very specifically in this case about white south africans who have migrated to zim mm-hmm. and actually enjoy um a, a quality of life that's you know second to none at a number of levels and and there are lots of south africans who've also gone to Z- zambia namibia botswana yes Right. Now, now the question in terms yes, of look. of what what could be done to fix Zimbabwe, and I'm I'm going to hand back to you uh, in a second. But I just wanted to make this point apropos of the single thing that holds back Zimbabwe right now yes. is its inability to get access to hard currency. Okay. Now there there was a moment of opportunity back when Tito Mboweni was governor, and at the time when the you might remember the trillion dollar bills that zim was yes. printing at the time sure. and at that point mugabe first approached south africa and said we'd like to make use of the rand as our currency and there was an opportunity there for tito to actually grasp that and say yes you think it would have been a good decision it would have been a good decision look uh, but the, essentially uh, the rand is the de facto uh, currency of zimbabwe it is not the um, dollar. Yeah. No, the the reason why they they end up needing dollars out there is because of the fact that the only way you can buy fuel in the country right now is through dollars. And again, the reason for that is that they have to import their fuel in dollars. So, but like I said, the rand is the de facto currency, but it goes through the entire process of the gatekeepers in government then being able to decide. Uh, who's actually able to get access to hard currency. Mm-hmm. Okay. So so when we have a situation now where we actually end up having a means of uh, of interchange, and this is what we spoke about in terms of BRICS, mm-hmm. that's going to make a, a seismic difference in the lives of Zimbabweans. And, and at that point, you know, things are, are going to change quite drastically. So I think... Right now, focusing on you know whether the elections were free, were free and fair, I think you know to speak of free and fair elections in most parts of the world right it's now a is moot it, point. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, <laughs> but there's point. also yeah. a, a level of <laughs> energy. We have a friend who's in asset management, and she talk, she also goes to Zimbabwe quite a lot, and she talks a lot about the infrastructure development that's happening and the kind of investment they're able to attract into Zimbabwe versus what they can attract here, hmm. and and the energy in Zimbabwe. So, you know, okay, Godfrey, and, and, those, and those, just last thing, those flights that I'm on to Zim, okay, they are always filled with white Afrikaners <laughs> who are generally working in the mining sector. Up in right. Mines and infrastructure. Yes, yeah. mines yeah. and infrastructure. All right, so Godfrey, your comments on all of that. There was a lot there. 
Oh, yes. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, Kenton, you know, you spoke about uh, the government of uh, national unity, you know, that uh, came through when uh, Mugen Shangrai was, uh, was still alive. And um, if I listen to you uh, clearly, you know, you believe um, they didn't get to achieve, you know, what they wanted. But, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll argue with you and say, you know, life was actually much better. If you talk to the Zimbabweans right now, and um, you know they look back at uh, that GNU and they feel you know things improved you know a, a great deal. Now, are you saying the opposition was supposed to they won the election and they're supposed to you know uh, get into power and not accept you know that you know that deal? You know, but I'll tell you now that you know things are very different on the ground when it comes to you know Zimbabwean Zimbabwean politics. Now. Uh, what is different? What is different between what happened then and what's happening now is, uh, you know, the fact that, for instance, you know, for for the first time, you know, we have, uh, you know, Sadiq, you know, has as a backbone. You know, we know that normally happens, you know, in uh, when it comes to <laughs> West Africa, you know, with uh, Ecowas, you know, they can come out mm -hmm. and, you know, they can, you know, uh, confront issues. But with Sadiq, most uh, leaders, you know, that are obviously from uh, the liberation movements you know they tend to you know team up and uh, support each other you know protect each other and they, they don't come up open now they came out openly and they said you know this election uh was not um uh, it fell short of the requirements of the constitution of zimbabwe the electoral act and the static principles and uh guidelines governing democratic elections we you know we had 68 observers that were deployed by the you know by sadek you know about five of them that went to each province and uh you know the the, the the report that they came up with was actually damning the african union itself you know again you know african union you know they they are very diplomatic they don't say things as they are but <laughs> for the first time they agreed we know with uh with, with sadik you know they said you know they, they they complained about the high registration fees look you know to, uh, to contest in this election you know uh, for someone to become a president they had to fork out twenty thousand us dollars you know, and uh, you know that's an head of. You must understand that uh, in the previous elections, one had to pay that's about. That's pretty much what I paid in, so, in order to register the political. Yeah, party. that's why that's what we pay here as <laughs> yeah. well. Yeah. Canton says. Canton, twenty thousand yeah. US. So, so twenty thousand. Yeah, thousand US dollars. Yeah. yeah, you know, and MPs, I think it was a thousand, a thousand dollars, and that these are people that if they get, if, if they win and they become become members of parliament, they're going to be earning something like uh, two hundred US dollars. So, you know, you, you ask yourself, you know, does it really make sense? You know, it, 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 it doesn't make sense. But that's, you know, that's what happened. We also have even the European Union, you know, they came through, I think we listened to Joseph Borrell, you know, uh, you know, he says, no, the election was conducted in a, in a climate of fear. Uh, you know, obviously the U.S. Department of uh, State spokesperson, you know, Matthew Miller, he also said, you know, as the Zimbabwean Electoral Commission officials, you know, forced observers to sign, you know, altered polling station results. So, you know, with all these with all these people that are coming out and they're saying, right. you know, the election was was not fair and fair. You know what? You I know, mean, that's the difference. I, I think that horse is bolted. So I think we, we, we should leave it at that. And and once again, Zimbabwe gets put on the back burner for another couple of years, I'm afraid. Uh, so, Godfrey, I want you to stay on and comment on some of the stories here in South Africa because I know you follow the news and you know a lot about what's going on here, and I'd like to have your opinion on these too. First thing, um, 
Pumis just told me now, uh, Raymond Ackerman just died. Of course, a, a giant of South African business, uh, someone who's had an enormous uh, impact on the retail sector. He's been a, a, a very uh, powerful businessman, an influence on business in this country. Uh, and obviously, you know, I, I think a, a loss, even though he wasn't actively involved in business for at least the last 20 years. Mm. Anything you want to add? But many people still walk into a pick and pay. Oh, pick and pay. Yeah. I mean, that's him. <laughs> That's the man. So, so Raymond Ackerman. Because he actually died this time. Because yes. the last time around, there was well, yeah, uh, fake a, news. Uh, yeah, release that was put out. In I read it that you uh, died once as well, Canton. But I see you here. So <laughs> no, I died and, and went to heaven, and here I am. You know? <laughs> Apparently, he passed away yesterday. This is a yeah. It's an article in the Daily Maverick. How old is he? In his nineties, huh? In his nineties. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I thought that was an important piece of news. The uh, Speaking of, of people who've made lots of money, there's a billionaire, this is in the news now as well, uh, Michiel LaRue, who's pumping millions of rands into South Africa's main opposition, the Democratic Alliance. He's also supported Herman Mashaba's Action SA, My Money's Build One SA. Uh, the EFF did not declare any donations. Uh, the Democratic Alliance have had to acknowledge over 22 million rand in donor funding. The ANC acknowledged 20 million. There's a new name on that action essay list. Did you see? Who's that? Um, have you got the? I don't have the list. In I front don't have of the complete list. She, no. Um, an individual. Yes. Who put in almost seven and a half million rand in wow. the last quarter into action essay? So wow. So they are um, soliciting enough support because, as we know, you need deep pockets to. You run need any deep pockets, uh, but then I, this is you know in America, for example. Party funding is just through the roof. The, the amounts of money are astronomical. In South Africa, what? How, how do you they think do, it should? How do you think it should work? In you know, in in the states, they have a a, a big machinery around funding. But they also have lots of individual donors, and I think Barack Obama was one of the first ones who spoke quite openly about how he was able to solicit lots of small donations, small donations well, that was from the, individuals. That was and the, I think this is this that was is the first real crowdfunding that happened in politics. And and South Africa also needs a lot more of that. You know, we, we have a lot of lip service of people who feel that there are lots of billionaires pulling the strings of politicians. But people are not willing to sign mm. a stop order to give 100 rand a month to whatever political party they believe in. Kenton, very famously, you guys funded your own party? Yes, we did. That was, um, <clears throat> and of course, we took the extraordinary step of listing every single donation on the website. Which I think should be the way all parties behave, yep. behave from mm -hmm. now on. So we can see who the major funders are and find out whether or not they are exercising influence on those parties. But and, and very but, seriously, but, but also South Africans... Yes, Godfrey? Yes, Godfrey. No, I was just about to say, you know, I think, uh, you know, it, it is obvious, you know, when someone uh, invests uh, in a party, you know, they, they fund them, they're expecting something in return. You know, let's, let's just be, you know, honest about it. I don't think they just, you know, donate for the sake of it. But Godfrey, and you, you made a point a little bit earlier that people uh, were expected to register for a thousand US dollars and they only earn 
200 US dollars back. The, and one of the problems that we have across the continent is kleptocracy. And it is exactly that kind of thinking that people go into government to become rich or to make money. You go into government to serve your country. You go into government to make a better place in your country. That's what you get in return. What you get in return is good policies that allow interview. And you can, you don't have to be in politics forever. You can go into government and public service for a, a period of time and then go into private sector where you make your millions. But you can't expect to make millions in the public service. That money is supposed to be for the betterment and upliftment of our country. Not exactly for people like to become it rich. In which part of the world, Pumi? Yeah, yeah that's, that's a little idealistic. Look, it's okay. That it, it is okay that it is idealistic. Godfrey says he's happy to move to that country <laughs> as well. Oh, of course. Godfrey is happy to leave anywhere that's not serving him to a place that will serve him instead that's, of fixing where he should be. Well, that not that the way of the world at the moment? People can move wherever they want, hmm. surely. Gareth, but, can, can we get Godfrey's take on what's happening in West Africa? Because I, yeah, I, I don't want us to get too... Yeah, I, I, I don't wanna, but, but I don't want to leave this alone mm, yet because mm. Michiel LaRue is the guy who started Capitech Bank. Mm. Yes. He's worth a billion dollars. He could put his money wherever he likes. I prefer the fact that he's actually reinvesting in South Africa rather than putting it in some Swiss bank account. Even because if he's, that's where his market is. Yes, but that's exactly the point. So that's you look it. after your own, you yeah. clean your own house, right? That's I agree. It. No, no, I agree. But I do think it's interesting too that we're living in a country where people, Pumi says we must crowdfund political parties, that people don't have money. Uh, Enoch, people must fund, fund their own freedom. Enoch Godongwana, who's on your WhatsApp group, Pums, <laughs> the finance minister. Said, it's, it's a rumor at this stage because uh, he hasn't said nothing. The, the, the finance minister has <laughs> hinted at possible tax increases because we're broke as a country, this is the rumor that's spreading around now, to fund the government's growing expense bill. Godongwana said South Africa's economic growth and tax revenue had been stifled by the energy and rail crisis. Oh, you don't say, and I wonder whose fault that is, (laughs) which has reached record levels of load shedding and logistics backlogs. Godongwana said, and by the way, I'm so sick of trucks on the highway. I'm so up to here with trucks, okay? I know that they have no option because our rail system is disastrous. But you saw Porsche Dovey's... Performance, Portland um, performance there at the at Transnet <sighs> this past weekend. Transnet are run, running now at a huge loss. They were running at a huge profit. Anyway, uh, they want to increase taxes, which is challenging and unpopular to say the least. Borrow more money, which is you know, there are only so many people in the world who are dumb enough to lend our government money, and then budget cuts, which also have limitations before hurting the system. No, no, no. we can do lots of budget cuts in this country. They just don't want to do them. Um, so any comments on that before we move on from money to West Africa? <laughs> well, the most logical thing that we should be doing is raising that. But our government will not do that. Because it's unpopular and hits everybody equally. Yes. If we, if we raised that, what sort of, if you were in charge now, what would you propose? How much? Look, even we're at what, what, 15% now? Yeah, we're on 15. Yeah, push it up to 16. That's all? One percentage yeah. point? How much do you think it would bring in? Well, let's take a look at um, the... Um, uh, the last uh, 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 budget stuff, and I'm just heading it. Well, 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 there's, there's a midterm <coughs> coming up budget. Well, ca- well, Canton's looking up that up. Of- do you do you think that's a good plan for me? No, I don't think it's a good plan because I don't think throttling our economy any further, where we know that the consumer is already cash strapped. You say we no know. more tax. No, 
No more tax. In fact, I, I think that what they need to be doing is they need to be looking at places where they can ease up on the tax for people to allow more money into the environment. Godfrey, what's your take on this? You know, I, obviously, you know, if uh, we go with uh, Kenton's idea of uh, increasing VAT, I am telling you, we can, uh, I can assure you, we will have uh, some protests, people running into the streets, because that's going to affect. Uh, we have daily protests in this country, in almost every part of the country. It doesn't get re- reported. And we can afford more. <laughs> we can afford more. All right. Have you found the numbers? No, I haven't found the numbers. Okay. Um, All right. While you're looking uh, for that, there's yeah. still other stuff we've got to get to before we can move to, uh, to West Africa. Uh, they're going to do lifestyle audits. Pumi and I have briefly mentioned this. The president himself has said they're going to do a lifestyle audit on him and on the deputy president and members of the cabinet. But it's taking longer than planned. Surprise, surprise. Addressing the National Assembly on Tuesday, he said lifestyle audits for public servants in government have been compulsory since March 2021, (laughs) and over 11,000 public servants have gone through the process. Yeah, he did say, see, there was a number. Can we see those? 11,000, I thought it was 100 and something. Why isn't that published? Why can't we see what our supposed leaders, our representatives, have in terms of hard assets and where their money is? What I'm more interested in is who are the people that get targeted? Why is it these 11,000 nameless, faceless people instead of starting at the top? Why are we not starting at the top? We should, if you are in government. It seems to me to be a tool of of keeping people in check. Kind of like the way ESCOM is now doing right. a probe we, we know into this. whistleblowers rather than yeah. what has been whistleblown on. This is like uh, Joe Biden going after Elon Musk for trying to build a glass house in Austin, Texas. It's the same thing. <laughs> you punish your political enemies. So it seems that no politicians are above that. One of these days... One of these days, I think we're going to be having a conversation about how the SIU is a political tool there in the Absolutely presidency. Absolutely it is. Absolutely there it is. in the presidency to keep people in line. Well, some people say lifestyle audits are a waste of time. <coughs> You're just giving money to consulting firms. So anyway, figures. Okay, so here we go. Tax revenue 2023-24, 640 billion came from personal income tax, 471.5 billion from VAT and 336 billion from corporate income tax. So so it's exactly the opposite of the amount of say we have in the economy. People who are paying personal income tax have the least say in the economy. Correct. Businesses have the most say in the economy and contribute only third place. Yes. And the average person in the population who's not necessarily taxed on their income but has to pay for you know general transactions. Yes, but, but the reason for that is it's uh, um it it's inversely proportional to the amount of power that you actually have. Correct. So in the case of, uh, of personal income tax, because we have no way of actually doing a tax revolt because our PAYE gets deducted before we receive our salaries. So right. we're not able to protest at that point. So that's the way it works. But by my very basic calculation right now, so from 471 billion rand, um, a 1% uh, increase in that would then push the tax revenues up to 502 billion rand, that one percentage point um, the increase. Which Do you think that'll be enough to cover all the graft and corruption? No, it, and certainly will, it certainly will not be enough to cover graft <laughs> and corruption, but it'll, but it'll certainly make a dent in the cost of the diesel that we are needing to burn to keep the economy ticking over. It is interesting, I think everybody's realized this, that during BRICS, load shedding was very much curtailed. 
it wasn't as big a problem. Well, they burnt <laughs> massive amounts of diesel in order to keep it going. And, you know, this is something that we've spoken about before, that we can continue burning diesel if we raise the price of electricity. But whenever we try raising the price of electricity, we have all of these action groups that turn around and say, no, you're not allowed to raise the price of electricity. So, Well, I don't know about you, but my, my bills for utilities went up almost, they almost doubled. Sure. In the last couple of, of weeks. Well, last month, months before. Is that normal? Should we be anticipating that every think, couple of months? So I, I think we should be anticipating that. But remember the positive spin-off of this. Is, positive? Yeah, the not posi- to my bank balance. <laughs> no, no, no. Gareth, this po- is exactly what Cyril said yesterday, uh, the that posi- we should the positive be looking at this positively. The positive spin-off on this is that it's forcing more and more people <laughs> off grid. Yeah. That is a positive spin-off. Guys, you should not underestimate how important this is. Getting people off grid so that they then accepting personal responsibility for generating their own energy um, in their their home space means that there's less money for ESCOM to end up stealing. And the rolling blackouts will continue to be a thing. But remember, at the same time, there's lack of enforcement around people who don't pay, which is, again, a nettle that the government is not prepared to grasp. Right. Okay, you want so to. So while we talk about electricity, do you know pumps? where our Minister of Electricity was? Is this, uh, this uh, Sputla, Sputla Ramachopa? After all the dancing. He, 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 he was chatting with an attractive woman about green energy. <laughs> <laughs> What's this? So he's already doing a bad job being the Minister of Electricity because he yeah, really hasn't done much, right. hasn't made a dent. I only in make assumptions that she's attractive is, because he was chatting to her. <laughs> and now, as of yesterday, he has been made chairperson of uh, the Africa Green Hydrogen Alliance. Oh, I don't know if we're meant to. He's what in we, Nairobi as we speak. Do we applaud getting, now? Or? <laughs> so he's already doing a bad job, one bad job, and now he's accepting more responsibility. So he can do to two spread bad himself, jobs. To are, spread are, himself. are you excited about this, Godfrey? Does this make a difference in your life? Ah, uh, you know, uh, obviously, yeah, it, uh, you know, in terms of the, um, the load shedding. No, just does it, do you care? Do you give a fisherman's fuck, to use that terminology, about <laughs> our Minister of Electricity being put in charge as chairperson of some hydrogen energy group? Or is this just another talk shop that's going to result in nothing? I think it's a yes or no question. I don't think it does much, you know, for no. for for an ordinary person on the on the ground. <laughs> We're talking about the Minister of uh, Electricity. It was exciting, you know. It was uh, I don't know whether I should use the word exciting, but uh, you know, when he was appointed, uh, you know, everyone was hopeful, you know, that uh, I things wasn't. would change. No, I, I <laughs> no, no I see, was not. That's a very Zimbabwean take but, on but this. But he, but he came with the, with the, with a good uh, you know track record and because of how that, he, you know, he, he, he he ran Swane for a while and ran it badly I don't see his good track record no? Have we lost Godfrey no, no he just he, he, he doesn't know the answer to are that, we talking we I talking? remember because I live in Swane and he was our mayor for a time and he was a terrible mayor part are of we what we part of what we're us? dealing with right now is in Swane is mm. as a result of that mismanagement under his administration. So 
No, I don't think he had a good track record. What did Godfrey. JJ say last week? <laughs> Absolute pleasure. <laughs> JJ had a very funny term about the mess that was left at Swane for the DA to. I can't remember, but it was. It's worth re-listening just to find <laughs> that term. Listen. All right, so we want to talk ECOWAS. Uh, what what is your what? Why is this pertinent to you, Kansan? What's important there? It's not ECOWAS specifically. It's, but it's Western just, Africa? It's just generally the stuff that's happening in, in West Africa right now. And so, you know, the, I don't know if you followed what happened in Chad over the past couple of days. So essentially, France has had troops stationed in a significant chunk of Francophone Africa for the mm-hmm. longest time. Uh, this week, there was an altercation between um, uh, a, a Chad citizen and some of the French troops stationed out there, and this uh, Chad citizen was killed by the French troops. So there's now an uprising in Chad to get the French troops out of the country. So now there's actually a pattern that's you know emerging in, in most of Francophone Africa. Yeah, J.J. J. Cornish hmm. told us about this on Tuesday and said that the, yeah. the, the French prime minister has said that they, the ambassador must stay there. <laughs> stay there, he's got important work to do, and the troops are not going anywhere. Well, um, I think what's, what's pretty much going to be the situation is that the French troops are going to have great difficulty feeding themselves, you know, on the assumption that they're, they're pretty much encircled and they're right. able to, uh, to come and go as they please. Um, very much so in the case of the, uh, the French ambassador as well. Uh, I'll be very interested to see how that actually plays out. The interesting thing for me in terms of this, yeah. the coup government right now in uh, Niger is that they're very much playing by the rules in terms of uh, diplomacy. Hmm. So, you know, they've been issuing official communiques to the French government and and saying we've actually uh, no longer recognized your ambassador and you need to withdraw him from the country. Oh, and wow. Yeah, so it, it's, uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, hmm. I, I would they suspect... Did, they, hmm? Sorry, but they did put out a statement of that nature. Yes, yes. That was many weeks ago. All right, so Godfrey, your comments on this. Uh, Chad, Niger, what do you think is going on here? Yeah, no, I think, you know, there is, uh, you know, a wave of, uh, you know, these coups, you know, taking place uh, in uh, West Africa. You know, we know uh, in Niger... Uh, from July 2023, you know, they ousted, you know, Bazoum and, uh, you know, General Chiam, you know, came through. And uh, it's not just there, you know, in Guinea again, I think in 2021, September, you know, Mamadi Dumbuya came through in Sudan, Abdel Fattah in 2019, uh, in Burkina Faso. Uh, you know, I know a lot of uh, ladies, they love uh, Ibrahim Traore. We saw him when he went to uh, Russia for those talks. Uh, he was all over, you know, social media. Uh, in Mali, Asim Guaita came through in 2021 when they, uh, you know, got rid of uh, Baka Keita. In Gabon, you know, we have uh, General Bryce. But uh, if you look at all these uh, coups, they are trying to, like uh, what uh, Kenton said, you know, they're trying to be very diplomatic. They're trying to avoid, you know, the, the word coup. I think it started with Zimbabwe when uh, they ousted uh, Robert Mugabe. They they said it was a coup. That was not a coup, uh, obviously, because they were trying to avoid uh, the sanctions that come through with uh, you know, them uh, officially, you know, saying you know this is a coup and uh, and 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 we're, and, we're, and we're taking over. But if there's something interesting that is coming out of these coups, like um, you know what Kenton said. Uh, in, uh, in, 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 I think we can say that in Gabon and in, in, in Niger, you know, France uh, is, uh, you know, the French, you know, government is, uh, you know, under a lot of pressure. 
you know they are you know they are pushing them out and uh, you know this is something that does not sit well with them because they stand to benefit a lot out of uh, you know some of these uh, countries that are you know very rich when it comes to when, when it comes to oil so yeah you know it's it's uh, it's very interesting to see you know how 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 it how it pans out and um you know but um you know for one to think you know that uh, it is a solution to come up with uh, these schools i you know i i don't think it's something that we really need to we really need to oh, celebrate even though it certainly, though, it certainly makes, uh, it makes it makes your job as a pan africanist that much harder because you know it it seems like something that we just have not graduated out of yet this, the, the peaceful transfer yes, of power just does not seem away. to be a thing in parts of, of this continent still. No, it's, 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 not go, it's not going away, you know, anytime soon. And mm. uh, if you look at it, you know, there's always, uh, there's all, there are always uh, reasons, you know, that, uh, you know, people, you know, come through. Some of, in some of these countries, they are saying, no, you're not handling these uh, Islamic insurgents, you know, very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, uh, in, in, uh, in Gabon, they said, no, it was uh, just an hour after the election results were, you know, were, were announced. And, um, you know, they just didn't want, uh, you know, President Ali Bogo to, to, to continue. And this is um, a family that has been in power since, uh, I think, 1967. That's you know, right. it's, uh, if it all dies, you know, someone comes up and, 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 they, and they continue more than, like that. More than half and a century some- that, that family have been in charge at, in Gabon. Yes, and I, I'm sure you, you you saw even on uh, social media when they got arrested, even his son when they arrested, they had, uh, you know, uh, you know, millions and millions, you know, of um, the, of money in in their suitcases, mm. and uh, you start. Yes. Uh, I think Pumpu, yes, and, and I think Pumi said earlier on that you know you you get into power so that uh, you can save, which is a very noble you know thing to say, but in reality. You know, you know that's not uh, what is happening. They get in power so that they can enrich themselves. Yeah, that and that is the flaw that we currently have as a continent, and we have too much patience. We have too much patience with thieving leaders. We have too much patience with individuals, and also we have too much patience with allowing the worst of us, quite honestly, to ascend to these positions. But it, it's not a noble. Ideal. I mean, Norway has the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world, and they look after their people. Like, it's not a noble ideal. But let's not forget that the way in which Norway actually ended up getting access to that sovereign wealth fund was basically because of oil wealth, which they are now trying to prevent the rest of the world who actually have oil reserves. Yeah, I mean, we should be doing that. From actually exploiting. Niger, you know, just to put this in perspective, they were selling uranium to France at 80 cents a kilogram. Eighty, um, as in you know, cents of in the euro. Okay? Right. Yeah. So so it was point eight euros. What they have now done is they have pushed the price of uranium that uh, to France to two hundred euros per kilogram. Right. And okay. we know with, exactly how that goes. Yeah, which is they've uh, just replaced yeah. the people who were there with suitcases of dollars in their yeah. in their. Now, uh, now the other issue, guys, and you know, uh, again, this this is in terms of actual control of monetary policy. Do some reading on on the CFA, Frank. There's a fairly extensive uh, Wikipedia entry on it, but essentially, France has controlled the economies of all of these territories because of the fact that France actually issues the currency that gets used in these territories. Mm. So the currency is nominally pegged to the euro and it's uh, you know at, at a percentage of the euro. But consider this. You have a colonial power 
that is responsible for printing your currency and effectively controlling your money supply. But at the same time, they're printing uh, the currency that you make use of, and which pretty much gives them leverage to print as much of it as they want themselves to then use to pay you for the stuff that they are buying from you, which means effectively they are getting all of the stuff for nothing. And why would these countries keep putting up with that? Well, because they are occupied countries. You know, I go back to this entire thing that says, if you have foreign troops on your soil, you are an occupied country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and if you look in terms of geopolitics today, World War II ended, but Europe is still occupied by the Americans. And it has been almost every single country there. You've you've got U.S. troops on the ground. Correct. Uh, South Korea, you're an occupied country. Japan, you're an occupied country. And it really is as simple as that. Ditto in the case of West Africa. There are French troops on the ground. You don't have your sovereignty. You don't control your currency. You don't have sovereignty. And now they have Wagner troops too. And and what what is uh, does anyone have an update? Uh, perhaps you know this, Godfrey. What's happening with uh, all these Wagner troops since Prigozhin was killed? Uh, are they going to hang around in Africa, wait for a new leader? Are they all going to form little atomized um, military groups in various places run by? Warlords, uh, do we have any updates on what's going on there, especially in places like the Central African Republic, which is and Mali? Yeah. Well, but uh, you know, Pumi, the, the Kremlin has appointed a new leader for oh, Wagner. Okay, hmm. well, that's convenient. <laughs> so, so he's in charge now. They continue. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but uh, we 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 all knew that uh, you know it was not uh, he was not going to get away with it. It was just uh, a matter of time. Uh, uh, you know, so you know, for for when uh, he eventually died, uh, you know, it was expected. Eventually, I, I think. When I he, you mean when, when his plane mysteriously lost the use of its wing? You don't play with Putin. <laughs> That's exactly right. All right. Um, before we close this off, we've got six minutes left. Um, we have to refer to some of the the big international stories. Uh, we've we've mentioned Macron and France already. There's quite a lot going on since BRICS that I think has got people uh, talking. Of course, Lula and there's G20 happening soon. Where do you want to go first? Because we've got limited time here. G20 is kind of an interesting thing happening right now because, of course, India is hosting the G20. And she's not going. No, but but she made it very clear. The reason why she is not going is not because he has a problem with India. She has made it very clear that he has no intention of meeting Biden. Ah, very good. And it really is as simple as that. Okay, so okay. He's, he's now written him off. Yeah, he's written him off. Um, <clears throat> we, we see consistent um, uh, reports that come out from the U.S. that Biden has been reaching out to Putin. Putin will not take his calls. Oh, really? Or from anyone in the U.S., yes. This has got to be the first time in a long time that a U.S. president's been ignored. Yes, very much so. Yeah. So the only time that uh, that the Russians actually paid attention was at the point at which Biden was visiting uh, Kiev and the Russians um, took note and they held off on attacks on Kiev until Biden was able to get out of there. So the back channels are still open, but Putin refuses to take his calls. Does India have a new name? India is very possibly – it's not a new name. Uh, it's, it's the uh, name for India. No, but Bharat has always been the, the Hindi name of, uh, of India and – what they're thinking of doing is just How do we spell that? B-H-A-R-A-T. Which, Bharat. Yeah, which, which is actually uh, the name of um, uh, a king who ruled most of 
uh, of India a, a few thousand years ago, um, but uh, renounced his kingdom, adopted Jainism, and went off uh, uh, to become a recluse, having successfully united the country. It's actually quite a <laughs> what a story. It, it's it's actually quite a cool story. At, so at shall we refer to it as Bharath from now on? Look, you know. <laughs> I mean, if we refer to uh, Port Elizabeth as Rebecca, then why not? Look, you know, <laughs> a rose by any other name. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, again, this is something that, uh, you know, India was the name that the Brits gave to all of the territories lumped together, which, remember, at the time composed what today became um, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, um, well, uh, it's an ancient word for everything that was east of the Indus River. No, it, it isn't that ancient. So the the Sanskrit word for it, uh, for the Indus River was Sindhu. Indus River um, was the name that was put in place by the Aryans who came across from uh, predominantly what what's today modern day Iran, and so they conquered as they went along. So the Dravidians, who were my ancestors, who lived in the Indus Valley, then got pushed to the south of India. So, yeah, but the Indus, uh, it, the Pakistan word for it was, uh, sorry, the uh, the Sanskrit word for it was always uh, Sindhu as opposed to, uh, uh, to Indus. Indus. And in fact, it's in the Indian National Anthem. Hmm. You know, it talks about uh, Punjab, Sindhu, Gujaratha, Maharatha, uh, okay. which are I think, various I think, territories. I think, yeah. okay. I think it's very nice to be Indian uh, right now. Uh, <laughs> Kenton, I'm sure you agree with me. Because uh, <laughs> recently, you know, India, obviously, you know, they, we saw a lot of countries uh, trying to join BRICS, and uh, India is part of that. And now they are hosting the G20 summit. But I think it should be expected. I mean, for a country that is a population of uh, over 1.5 billion people, you know, they should have that kind of influence. I'm just concerned that the BRICS acronym will have to change because I was the only was the only vowel in BRICS. Now we've got a bit of a problem. <laughs> what are we going to say? I, I, I think they That's said Egypt. it's not going to change. They, we've got Argentina and Egypt. BRICS plus, six or BRICS plus seven. Mm. Uh, the like new BRICS. So they can keep, uh, yeah, BRICS plus ten depending on the number of countries that join. You see, the interesting thing but that people don't consider about BRICS, guys, and uh, and we need to get people to think along these lines. BRICS is not an alliance. Okay, so it's it's, it's very different to NATO, for example. Which yeah, because no, they're not talking about coming to each other's defense if anyone's attacked. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what and they, they what, have their own intra... It, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's essentially a body that's establishing economic rules for trading... Uh, among uh, the, various, the various member states. And it, it, it's a huge difference. So there's no contradiction, for example, between um, <clears throat> Russia having its, uh, um, uh, what do they call themselves, the CIS, that's their, their defense uh, equivalent of NATO. Um, India is part of the Quad, which includes the, the US in, uh, in the Pacific yeah, region. So the military alliances... Uh, yeah, uh, Godfrey? But it's not talking about, uh, you know, you know things like, uh, you know, the seat in the uh, Security Council, you know, United Nations Security Council, uh, which is, um, you know, I think something that uh, is very interesting because, uh, like you said, normally they talk about uh, the economy, the economy, and, um, and, and they stand there. 
but uh, now it looks like they're extending and uh, they're getting to talk about uh, many other things as well. It's so, isn't, it a, isn't it interesting, Godfrey and Canton and Pumi, that the UN has become such an unused term? I, I don't think anyone's particularly interested in what they're... Everyone's talking G20, BRICS. The UN is like a relic now, I'm afraid. Don't you think? Well, the world yeah, has changed. India yeah. would, in fact, have been part of uh, of the UN Security Council just in terms of its participation in the Second World War. Yeah. If not for the fact that at the time India was part of the British Empire. And so effectively, India, in, in, India lost out on having a seat on the... UN Security Council at the time. So it essentially became but Russia, China. But my point yeah. is no one cares about the UN. Yes, but um, the Security Council is still, you know, happens to be the place where decisions ultimately get made. And mm. um, and so now it is fundamentally dysfunctional because <laughs> as long as Russia and China have vetoes, which which they do, uh, nothing actually comes out it's of a, the UN. It's a stalemate. Yes. So, but you're exactly right, Garrett. There will be increasing reliance on all of these other bodies that you know effectively define policies at a number of other levels right but uh, it, it's kind of like those those climate conferences they don't really have the point to enforce anything pointless all right uh, that's all we got time for so Godfrey thank you very much for joining us this morning it's good to have you on the show and uh, I, I do we hope- didn't even get to talk about Godfrey's poetry. No, no, no. But this the burning platform is no place for poetry, Pumi. But thank you, Godfrey. And we will see you soon. Thank you very much. Uh, Pumi thank and you Canton. very much. It was nice uh, being with you on uh, the burning platform. Thank you. Nice chatting to you, Pumi, Canton. Uh, we just hope, uh, you know, this uh, spirit of uh, coups doesn't uh, spread into Zimbabwe <laughs> where there's also a disputed election. I mean, we had uh, the president of Cameroon, I think he's also afraid that it might come through to him. Well, hasn't he? He's been there for he's been there for years as well, Cameroon, right? Kagame has fired yeah, lots of his generals yeah, in the past week. Yeah. yeah okay. So Paul, Paul, we organized his presidential card. He was just yeah. like, "Don't you get any ideas, Nagurus?" <laughs> All right, we'll end the show on that. All right, thank you very much, Godfrey. Thank you, Pumi and Canton. Cheers, everybody. We will see you tomorrow at six a.m. Be good. Cliffcentral.com.